Hey, it's Amy, and I'm popping into the feed right now to tell you that I believe we're creating something together here on Threshold. You, me, and the whole team that makes this show. We're making a meeting ground for people who want to think and feel and learn about this unbelievably fascinating and beautiful planet. It's a pretty special place in the audio landscape, but we need your support for it to grow and thrive. There are lots of ways you can help. You can make a donation and also make introductions. Mention the show to a friend or a coworker. Share an episode with your network. Your recommendation is how more people will find this community and join the conversation. Learn more about how you can help at thresholdpodcast.org. And thank you so much for listening. This series was supported by the Pulitzer Center. Hey, everybody. In the last week, there have been some big developments in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge story, and that's what this extra is all about. But before we dive into that, I want to let you know that we had to change the date of our special event with National Geographic photographer Amy Vitali. That event was originally scheduled for this week, but Amy had some unexpected changes to her travel plans, so we've moved it to Thursday, September 10th. It's still at 7 p.m. Eastern time. It's all happening on Zoom, so you can participate from wherever you are, and it's going to be such a fun night. We're going to do a special live taping of a Threshold Conversations episode. You'll get to see a little bit about how we make the show, and you'll have the chance to learn about how Amy Vitali makes her award-winning photographs, which document efforts to protect elephants, pandas, rhinos, and more. Again, it's all happening on September 10th. You can get tickets and more information at our website, thresholdpodcast.org. And I hope to see you there. Okay, so what's going on with the refuge? Well, if you listened to the Peabody award-winning third season of Threshold, you already know the backstory. After 40 years of debating whether or not we should drill for oil in the country's largest wildlife refuge, Congress made drilling legal back in December of 2017. In fact, they mandated drilling in the refuge. But there's a big process of environmental review required before that can actually happen. So the latest news is last week, the Department of the Interior announced that this environmental review was now complete and that they're opening up the whole coastal plain of the refuge for oil and gas development. So the simplest way to say this is that the pro-oil side is closer than it's ever been to making drilling a reality in the refuge. But that is not the end of the story. We're releasing this on Wednesday. Two days ago, on Monday, two different lawsuits aimed at stopping the drilling were filed in U.S. District Court in Alaska. Both of those lawsuits have multiple plaintiffs. One is led by the Gwich'in Steering Committee, and one is led by the Audubon Society. And these lawsuits claim that the Trump administration has violated the Endangered Species Act and many other signature natural resource and indigenous rights laws. When we were producing season three of Threshold, everyone who's paying attention to this issue could have guessed that this was all going to happen sometime before the 2020 election. This moment when the administration says, yes, we are definitely going for this, and the opponents to drilling say, no, you're not, we'll see you in court. In a way, that's why I wanted to make the whole series, to give people the background on this issue, to understand this critical juncture. Here we are, the election is less than three months away, 
and what could be the final showdown on drilling in the refuge is on. So to help me analyze this important moment, I called Heather Richards, a reporter for E&E News, which is a news organization based in Washington, D.C., focusing on energy and the environment. Heather covers offshore energy and drilling on public lands for E&E. She previously covered energy and the environment for the Casper Star Tribune in Wyoming. She and I talked last Friday, after the administration made their announcement, but before these two lawsuits were filed, and we focused on what is happening, what it means, and why it matters. Quite a few listeners responded to our call for questions on social media. Thanks to all of you. I think we covered most of them here. Feel free to send us more questions, though, because we're going to be keeping a very close eye on this over the next few months. So to start, I asked Heather just to sum up where we are right now, or at least where we were on Friday, August 21st. The Interior Secretary, David Bernhardt, uh, Trump's Interior Secretary, announced a final decision on the oil and gas leasing program. It was expected, but people didn't know exactly when it was going to come. And then on Monday, they they popped it out and there was a decision on on the program, which is just the final step kind of before they can move forward and actually have a lease auction up there. So just to make sure everybody's tracking our different terminology here, what is a lease sale or a lease auction? And I think you kind of just defined it, but but what is a record of decision? So when, uh, so, you know, the, the federal government has a bunch of minerals, right? Oil and gas assets that are out in Wyoming, oil and gas assets that are in Alaska. And uh, there, there's programs throughout the country. There's programs in the Gulf of Mexico. There's programs in states like Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico. And we regularly have these oil and gas lease sales, which is an auction where oil and gas companies can get a bid in and they get um, they they bid in for a lease and then they have a certain period of time in which they can develop those minerals. So they do the drilling, you know, um, but they the, the, the actual minerals are, are held in trust by the federal government. Technically, they they belong to us, I guess, <laughs> um, is, is the reality there. But, um, you know, the federal government manages them on behalf of the American people. And so um, the 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 Anwar story is one of developing a leasing program. And so that is where we're at right now with a record of decision is they created this program. They went through um, kind of the steps that you have to go through to do environmental review and analyze the impacts of having an oil and gas leasing program and development program in Anwar. And then they make a decision on how they're going to proceed with that. And then you have the program set up and done. And then the next thing is to actually, you know, implement it by having lease sales. Um, so we're at the point where we have a program, we know what it looks like, and they have not yet made that step where it says, okay, oil and gas companies on December 15th, we're going to have this, this sale get ready. So what does the record of decision say? And I mean, it's a whatever 90-page document, so of course we're not going to be able to go into all the details, but in broad strokes, what do we know now that we didn't know before it came out? We knew we knew most of this going in because we had the process, the environmental review process. Um, we kind of knew what they were going to do, which, as you know, they kind of um, look at a couple different tracks and then they analyze those. So what would happen if we only opened up a million acres of the coastal plain and developed just that? What would that look like? You know, what, what would it look like if we only let 
this area over here develop. It didn't come anywhere near the riparian, the water areas. You know, these different kind of ways that you can juggle um, examining a potential oil and gas program. Um, and the one they did is the most extensive, which is to say, basically, we're going to lease the entirety of the coastal plain, which is 1.6 million acres um, of the entire refuge is, is 19.3 or so. Uh, so it's this massive area, and 1.6 million acres is the coastal area where there's, you know, expected to be quite a bit of, of oil underneath. Um, and so the entire, the entire area is to be um, open to oil and gas for leasing. So there's, um, so, so we have this kind of broad scope, but there's still a lot, a ton of details in terms of how development would take place in the refuge that we do not know from this mm -hmm. um, and is going gonna, is gonna to come out during a lease sale, after a lease sale, as, as things move forward, if they move forward. And so timing, timing is uh, always the issue, right? What do we know about when a lease sale might happen, if anything? The only thing we know for sure is there, there is in kind of in statute and the, what they have to do is they have to put out a lease notice 30 days before a sale takes place. So that's the only kind of timing that we know for sure that there, here's this block of time. Here's this rule that we have to follow. Otherwise, we don't know anything except that, you know, Congress said you have to hold the first lease sale by 2021. Um, so any any time between now and the end of 2021, they could hold a sale and still be, you know, in compliance with what Congress has asked them to do. Um, but of course, we all know that there's a massive controversial election coming up in November. Um, and so, so it, you know, if they wanted to do something before Trump left office, for example, the only thing they would be really, really pressed for is that 30-day period. But what what usually happens in like the, the Petroleum Reserve of Alaska is they also give like 30 to 60 days to the oil and gas industry. So they put out this notice to the oil and gas industry, which is also a notice for all of us, um, a call for nominations. Um, and so that's the point where they kind of bring in oil and gas and oil and gas is making its decision on what it wants to bid on and what it wants to do. And so that that is also something that takes up time. So, you know, you, you know, you could reasonably think they need two months between they do something active, like call for nominations and actually hold a sale. But that isn't even that's 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 not even set in stone. Like technically, it's only 30 days. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that seems really puzzling to me about this case in particular is, um, you know, there was hope on some people's uh, part that there would be a new seismic exploration last winter. And that didn't happen. And so if they do a lease sale um, between now and the election, they're going to be doing it based on this old data from, you know, whatever it was, 30 some years ago. Um, what do you know about that? I mean, is that unusual to have a lease sale in an area where they know so little about the specifics of where the oil actually is or how much specifically there is? I mean, we have guesses, but they're very broad guesses at this point. Yeah, it's not necessarily um, unusual, I think, given the narrowness potentially of the time period that they have access here and the pressure on it. But it, it's, it's definitely a thing where oil and gas operators are to some degree would be bidding blind, I think is what people, how people say it. There's a lot that the oil and gas business and there's a lot that federal agencies and there's a lot that um, people up here have been studying this, you know, academics and geologists and such um, that they know. Um, and so, so yes, they are going in blind, but that's not to say they're so super blind that they're, they don't know anything. They're, they're just making some educated guesses, I guess. Yeah. I wonder if that would inhibit the leasing process, though, at all, just in terms of the amount of risk that people are taking on. It, it would, seems like it would be very beneficial to know, you know, what the potential rewards are in, you know, with some specificity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's a, it's, it's one of the many factors, I guess, that experts are 
are thinking about it uh, in terms of how competitive this leaf sale ends up being. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, with the more knowledge you have, the more, you know, awareness you have of, of, of a place that could be really profitable, the more valuable that is. And so people bid on that and the competition shoots up the price. And the whole reason we're opening up Anwar supposedly is to bring in this revenue, right? Um, so, so, so yes, that is a, it's a massive factor in, in, in terms of the economics up there, I think of what happens, uh, in a lease sale. Um, but it's just something that, you know, they, they have to do. I mean, the Trump administration obviously tripped over a lot of things, you know, trying to get this done. That's the reality. This is the reality of drilling up there, right? Polar bears and the endangered species act and the weather and global warming and <laughs> and it's so expensive to drill up there and there's no infrastructure at all for oil and gas development in the refuge in the coastal plain right as in the, like there is in other places which is a whole nother expense um so i feel like you know the lack of seismic um in particular is just you know one more thing that kind of affects you know do these guys want to drill up there or not how much are they going to spend to drill how much is this going to end up garnering because everybody's curious yeah yeah everybody wants to know right like you know environmentalists are curious and everybody's kind of curious about what happens and and what anwar holds i think a lot of people might be holding out and hoping that everybody drills dry holes and you know you can thumb your nose at the oil and gas industry and say we told you so you shouldn't have done this you know you shouldn't have drilled here Mm. and other people you know are convinced that you know there's buckets and buckets of oil there that's going to come up and i just i just none of us really know that yeah yeah and then there's also the the economics of right now. And obviously, this is a long term investment with potential long term rewards. But I mean, it is um, it is a really interesting time to be opening up a new oil fields when we've got a huge oil glut and crude prices are way down and major oil companies are posting like record losses, small operators are going out of business like and it's because there's too much oil on the market. Um just in terms of purely the economics, like taking polar bears and everything else out of it, um, why is there a good economic argument to pursue drilling anyway, given where we're at um, in the oil markets right now? No, no, I've never, I, I haven't heard anybody. I think that what the defense that people would kind of try and um, bring to that argument would be that oil and gas development is something that takes over, takes place over a long period of time. So you want to um, try to try and get those leases sold and get the economic uh, activity from selling leases and getting people involved there and then you have development that takes place over decades or what have you um and i mean i I, you know i guess there's there's certainly uh truth in the fact that you know somebody doesn't necessarily look at tomorrow for their long-term plans in the oil and gas business they set things up over time um but but that's not that i don't think that that really answers your question which is you know why do this now in this in this place there's not a great there's not a great answer for that. You know, I think Alaska has been pushing for this for such a long time um, for, you know, kind of understandable reasons in the sense that they're so de- they're so dependent on oil and gas, even though, of course, there are Alaskans that do not want this at all. Um, but it is fairly popular in the state. And, and certainly the politicians have pushed for this for a long time for that reason. Uh, but again, that doesn't get to your get to your point does it you know we have we have an oil and gas glut globally that's led by the united states becoming this massive oil and gas producer because of shale drilling and fracking and all these things happening in the lower 48 um that totally changed the oil and gas market globally it's not an easy sell if i was trying to sell it like i'm trying my best right now to, to to sell it to you i just don't have a lot to offer you know the 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 price of oil is in trouble the oil and gas market is in trouble 
um, that could that could last for a very long time. We could have somewhat depressed prices for a very long time. Um, but then again, the oil and gas industry, it still exists. There's people that still want to drill. So, you know, maybe there is a chance. I don't know. And then let's get into the, the polar bear issue and the wildlife issue in general, because, I mean, I think that is the other thing that, that would feel um, daunting to take on as a as a drilling company that, you know, you know, you know, you're going to make people really mad if you uh, run over a polar bear den, kill a mother and her cubs, which is completely possible. I mean, not just once, but, you know, as a, as a part of operations. Um, what do you think the largest weaknesses are here on the environmental front in terms of places where this record of decision or the, the NEPA process in general may become come under fire from people who want to litigate polar bears do seem to be this massive bench point yeah um just because the south beaufort sea population that's over there is is so imperiled and it is the job of the fish and wildlife service to kind of protect those that species um the way they kind of uh, look at these kind of projects they have to put out a biological opinion that says whether or not you know um this can go forward without you know really jeopardizing the, the population as a whole, and they did do that earlier this year, um, put out a biological opinion that um, was interesting and said, you know, we don't see this program as a whole necessarily uh, as threatening this species, but, you know, basically, you know, we really have to work with anybody on the leasing permitting, you know, down the line um, in order to make sure that's not the case, because the, the reality is, like, you have you have a population that is so imperiled already. Mm-hmm. So I think that the polar bear issue is um, is probably the, the, the one that's most massive, you know, because they have to build ice roads. They have to get out there, you know, as, assuming that at some point if somebody got a lease, they would want to do seismic. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things that have to take place in order for drilling to take place. And then, of course, there's drilling. So there's all this activity that has to happen, even if they're trying to keep their footprint very, very low up there, which they're kind of required to do. Um, there's still a footprint, and there's still, and there's still a ton of bears that are all over this, all over this coastal plain. So I think the polar bear issue is one people have focused on a lot, just because it seems so impossible to get past that mm-hmm. in order to have an oil and gas program take place here legally. And have you have you witnessed an, uh, a proposed lease sale that actually got stopped or delayed because of legal challenges before? And and you know what that that's where I want to get into some questions from some of our listeners. And that's one thing that many people have asked is like, you know, if there is a lawsuit, could it actually stop this from going forward? How is how do those two things intersect? Yeah, um, there there's some precedent. Um, it definitely has happened. But there's a reason environmentalists fight very hard at the leasing stage. Um, and it's because once that lease is in somebody's hands for the time period of that lease, they have a right to do something. It's like a property right, right? It's a right to drill, um, and it's pretty strong. So, so there's a, there's a lot of people watching this and thinking that a lease sale for Anwar is going to happen sooner rather than later, because once those leases are in, in the hands of a company or an individual, the government has promised it's going to allow them to do something. So it's not easy to just, you know, snatch that away from somebody. So. To kind of summarize where that leaves us in terms of timing, then we've got on the the pro drilling side a, a lot of urgency to get that lease sale held, and on the anti drilling side a lot of urgency to get lawsuits filed to stop the lease sale from happening. All of this on the assumption that if President Trump remains in office and they have leases, then they will it, it's it's open season. Go ahead and start drilling, and if if uh, Joe Biden gets in office and uh, and they've managed to delay the lease sale. I, I believe he's pledged to shut down the possibility of drilling in Anwar. 
uh, is that is that your understanding of his position, Biden's? Yeah, he he made a day one promise to restore protections in Anwar, um, and he's long been against drilling in Anwar. But again, like I, you know, from what I've seen and what illegal analysis I've heard, um, you know, once they have those leases, it it would become a problem. So a president can't necessarily do that easily either. So that would become a court issue, um, you know. So so, but he has made that commitment. He has made that commitment that he'll in day one he'll come in and he'll restore the, the protections in Anwar and and I don't know I've definitely heard folks say that you know that is something that with an executive order he probably feasibly could do but again it's a it's 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 a conflict right because Congress is the one that mandated the sale <laughs> um, so you know in November I think the other thing we're thinking about is not just who's who's the president but what's the makeup of the Senate that's going to have a huge impact on on what happens next yeah. I know I need to let you go here, but a couple quick ending questions from our from our listeners. Um, I think we covered the first couple here. We had several questions about how um, indigenous people in the area are reacting to this and feeling about this, but I'm, I want to table those until I actually get to talk to some of the indigenous people up there and they let them um, tell us themselves how they're, they're feeling. But I just want to acknowledge to listeners, we hear you, we're curious, we're working on that. And so I guess I'll, I'll just at, end with our probably most frequent question um, from, from our listener base has been, what can people do to impact this process? And um, quite a few listeners asking specifically, what can they do to stop the drilling from happening? Um, what's your answer to that when, as a journalist when people, when people ask you that kind of question? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, as you know, I mean, our positions as journalists are not necessarily to uh, to advocate for for people to do or not do something in relation to political <laughs> political power. I I, uh, I don't know. I think my role is to try and understand these things as best as possible and put information out. My my role is not necessarily to uh, to teach people how to be activists. But um but I don't know. I'd be curious your thoughts honestly because you know journalism is changing a lot and there's kind of questions about objectivity and our role in these kind of things are are very. Uh, um, very important questions to be having right now, having right now. So I don't know. What do you say to people when they ask you? I think I, I say something really similar, which is, um, you know, I think that there's a really important role for activism in society. And I think that there's a really important role for journalism. And I think that those two things are different, but inform each other. Uh, journalists should be covering what activists do on all sides and understanding them. And activists should be reading journalism on all sides and, and there should be conversation. But I, I do think that there's value in having um, an attempt to create a space to think and learn together that is not uh, explicitly persuasive. Um, and, and that by providing education, information, uh, you know, interviews with people who know the issue the best, um, to make space for people to to kind of feel empowered in their own lives, in their own minds, to make their own decisions about what to do. I, I think that there are cases where some people might say that's cowardly or that's like punting in some way of like, oh no, you know, you, you gotta you gotta like tell people what to do. But I actually think it's um I, I think the temptation to weigh in and sort of assume as a journalist because you've researched something really well that you 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 know the right answer. And, and that you have the right or the authority to tell other people what to do is also kind of a form of cowardice and, and honestly hubris that um, feels important to stay away from. So um, I think my, if I get asked that, and I guess I am being asked that directly right now as a journalist who's covered this, my feeling is what I want to tell people to do is learn and um, 
listen to voices that they maybe don't expect to agree with and um, and just try to keep learning and then do all the things that they do as as citizens in their own communities and in the nation that make them feel um, like they're like they have meaning, you know, as citizens. Yeah. People are engaging so much more with information and sometimes without the tools or the time actually um, to figure out what's true or not. You know what I mean? So. I don't know. It's a difficult time. I really, my heart goes out to people reading the news as somebody that's in the news, you know, I get pissed off all the time at other journalists. I get pissed off at myself and the, and the ecosystem, but I also really believe in what we do. And I'm, I'm exposed to so many incredible journalists. I mean, um, that just do that, just navigate it so well. And, uh, but I think for folks, just normal people across the country, they just feel overwhelmed and I feel for them, you know, because they are overwhelmed. (laughs) <laughs> they're not wrong. Like <laughs> there's tons of information being poured at them. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, people use the word bias in a lot of weird ways, but there's definitely just a lot of um, shading, shading that goes on. I think that is just hard for people to wade through. Yeah, absolutely. And I do also agree though, that there is, in addition to all the crap journalism or pseudo journalism that's out there, there's some really fantastic reporting happening and and you're one of those people doing it so thanks for just cranking out story after valuable and meaty and and nuanced story about um, a lot of things that I'm paying attention to but you're, you're doing great work and I'm grateful for it and I'm grateful for your time here today thanks so much Heather no it was fun thank you so much for having me I'm sorry you know I do uh, I get a little bit chatty on stuff so seriously good luck on editing that <laughs> I love the chatty it's been great talking to you Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Like I said at the top, we're going to be tracking this story closely over the next few months. And if you want to understand the whole context here a little better, Season 3 of Threshold is a really good resource. We go into the origin story of this conflict, and we talk to some of the people who call this land home. Gwich'in people in the U.S. and in Canada, Inupiaq people who live in the only village located inside the refuge, We talk to people who support drilling, others who oppose it, and we won our first Peabody Award for this season of our show. Thank you for listening and for sharing it with other people. Your recommendation means so much. You can tell people to find it at thresholdpodcast.org or wherever they get their podcasts. Our funders for season three of Threshold include the Pulitzer Center, Montana Public Radio, the Park Foundation, the High Stakes Foundation, Newsmatch, and you, our listeners. You can join our community and get tickets to our upcoming live event with Amy Vitali at thresholdpodcast.org. The team behind Threshold includes Angela Swatek, Casey Simpson, Eva Kalea, Nick Mott, and Talia Farnsworth. Special thanks to board members Caroline Kurtz, Dan Carreno, Hannah Carey, Kara Cromwell, Katie DeFusco, and Matt Herlihy. Our music is by Travis Yost. <laughs>